Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. I'm very excited about my guest today. It's David Simon, and many of you will know his name because he was the creator or co-creator with Edward Burns of The Wire, that fantastic TV show on uh, HBO in the early 2000s about the drug war and about the drug world in Baltimore. He's got a new show out on HBO called We Own This City. And it's in a way, uh, not a sequel, I think he's called it a sort of coda to The Wire, but also going back into Baltimore about the drug trade, about police and police corruption. So, David, listen, thanks so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Thank you for having me. You and I, we've never met. 
But I feel like we've been in sort of parallel tracks. And so I'm going to be sharing stuff about my own life that you don't know. First of all, we share in common where we're two bald white guys who grew up in the suburbs, whose fathers were, as you call it, professional Jews, right? Because yours worked for the <laughs> Jewish Social Service Organization, B'nai B'rith, mine was a rabbi, and who have been passionate for our entire adult life about ending the drug war and drug prohibition. So let me just start by asking you, why did this become such a significant part and passion of your life? Well, I, I wasn't passionate about it for my whole life. Um, I would say I acquired some on-the-ground awareness of what the drug war was accomplishing and what it wasn't uh, because they made me the police reporter for the Baltimore Sun in the city of Baltimore. That was a happenstance. I, I, was, I wanted to go into journalism. I, was a, I wanted to be a newspaperman, and I happened to get hired, and, and they put me on the entry-level beat of night police reporter, uh, and it was in this remarkably drug-saturated city of Baltimore um, where the drug war was in full force and, and would actually ratchet up several times while I was there. And so I sort of experienced the drug war um, as an observer. I wasn't particularly interested in, in the subject matter until it became my beat. I didn't have a lot of experience or, or interest in drugs themselves. I mean, I you know smoked some weed and you know, tried some things here and there, but it was it was not. I I, I was I had no devotional interest in in um, altered states, and this was just pure journalistic uh, uh, interest. And, and and then having the beat, I, I you know at first I was just interested in the, in how the war was progressing. I was covering it as the facts on the ground, but there came a point at which I started to realize that the policy itself was was problematic. Did you find ways you think in your reporting for the Baltimore Sun? I mean, the drug war was really beginning to go crazy in the 80s when you were yeah. covering it and the early 90s. Did you find ways to put in your critical approach to this stuff in the reporting? Or was it just impossible or was it somewhat possible, but you weren't thinking to do it quite yet at that point? I think I probably got there when I got there, which is to say in the beginning, you know, I mean, you got to remember I was 20, 21 years old when I started writing for the newspaper and 22 when they put me on that beat about to turn 23. And um, in the beginning, you're just sort of like trying to keep up with what happened yesterday. So, you know, you're talking, to, you're talking to cops, you know, you don't have a lot of sources on the street. So when they put dope on the table, when they say, you know, oh, this happened in the Southeast District today, we, we seized, you know, this much dope and it's got a street value of X and we got three guns with it and they put it all on the table. It, you know, it's news. It's just, it's, it's, it's what happened yesterday. So you're just, in the beginning, you're just reporting without context, but you're learning, you know, you're, you're learning to acquire sources and people who might, you know, let you buy them a beer and talk to you in, you know, in law enforcement. And, but everything was sort of at a surface level because you're young and it's a new beat and you're just, you know, just, hey, what happened yesterday and can I get a byline? Um, and there came a point, I'd say, four years into me covering the beat when I was in my, you know, I was probably about uh, 26, uh, when they gave me an assignment to, um, do sort of a history on this one drug trafficker who had had a legendary career in Baltimore going back to the early 1960s, uh, little Melvin, little Melvin Williams. And I tried to find out everything I could about this guy. He had, he had just fallen for his third major charge. He'd gone to jail in 67. He'd gone to jail again in 75. He was now back out in 84 and he had gotten caught up in a, in a federal case. And he, he was really a character. I mean, and a, a sort of a guy who had cut a w wide swath in Baltimore. And so I, I learned everything I could about him. And eventually, he started talking to me. From He was in Lewisburg Penitentiary. And uh, I got invited up to 
sort of for him to pontificate on his life. And it ended up being a long series of articles. And, and in talking to Melvin, I started to have doubts about the efficacy of the drug war and about what had replaced him. Because in some respects, um, arresting him had been uh, as about a meaningful a prosecution as you could have. He'd done a lot of damage. But it also had almost no effect on the on the street culture of drugs in Baltimore, as, as no arrest seems to ever, you know, in, in the long run. Um, obviously, arresting people for drug-related violence is elemental and necessary, but trying to inhibit the drug trade uh, through arrest, the power of arrest seems to be problematic. So that was the first moment. And then as I proceeded down a pace, you know, I started to look at what it was going wrong inside the police department. And I would say just before I left the paper, by then I had, I had come to the conclusion that um, drug enforcement was actually destroying law enforcement. It was destroying policing. I don't think anyone was arguing that anywhere that I was reading, but I was seeing it before my eyes in terms of what it was doing to the Baltimore Police Department and the state's attorney's office to an extent. So I, I, uh, I started but to see, say David, that. David, let me interrupt you to say, because, I mean, I, you know, for me, I mean, just, you know, back in the 80s, I'm a graduate student at Harvard. I get myself into the State Department's Narcotics Bureau. I get some clearances, and I go and interview DEA and Customs and FBI and CIA agents mm-hmm. and all this all around the world, Latin America and Europe. And I was kind of in this system, and I'm seeing how stupid the whole damn thing is. But what I'm also aware of is when I actually write my dissertation and books about this, I lean over backwards to be fair to these DEA guys, even though I think what they're doing is just like the prohibition agents of old. Now, to flash forward, you know, some years ago, maybe late 90s, 90s, early 2000s, the the former executive editor of the New York Times, Max Frankel, writes an op-ed in the Times, and he says it's time for uh, the media, for the reporters, to cover the drug war the same way that that Vietnam reporters finally began to cover the Vietnam War, the way that David Halberstam or Neil Sheehan right. knows guys to be critical, right? That's and right. It's a kind of a calling out, right? But at the same time, what I've also heard people say is that when you're a police reporter, when you're covering crime, you depend on those cops as your sources. And if you start writing critical stuff about them while you're covering it, you lose your sources, you lose your access. If there's a kind of built-in contradiction between covering the drug war in a critical way as a daily reporter and maintaining your ability to function. And I wonder- You know, I, I, mean, I didn't have that problem. I have to say, hmm. uh, I didn't have that problem at all in the sense that I got to know a lot of cops and some of them were abiding drug warriors. And certainly if somebody was like running the DEA office, mm-hmm. uh, field office in Baltimore, or somebody was the head of the narcotics unit, I didn't expect any real introspection about what they were doing or, or any real you know, self-awareness or self-critique about, about policy coming from them. That's not what you get. I mean, if you make a bunch of sources, if you, if you work the beat hard, you eventually find the cops who are being a little bit thoughtful about what they're accomplishing and what they're not. Because- they can't help but see it. And and what I would credit is I found a lot of cops, um, some really smart, who said, this is screwed up. And, you know, we not only are we not winning, we're not, you know, we're, we're undercutting what we claim to be. Mm-hmm. And they became in, insightful to me. Some of the best anti-drug war sources I ever got 
were cops who were fighting the drug yeah, war. No, no. I mean, in that sense, I, when I was interviewing the DEA guys, it was the same thing. There were guys who were total ideologues, and there were guys who would just lie their asses off to me. But then there were people who were just cynical and just saying, it's just a job. It's just to be like any other police work, and there'll be a job for my kid one day. Uh, I'm not, and then there I, are others I, who were privately in favor of legalization. So I'm you not did with get you. That I'm not with you on the cynical. I mean, I, 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 look, I met some cynics who were like, yeah, this is, this is just what I'm doing today. But but the guys who were the best sources, who were yeah. um, who were really insightful about it, were bothered, um, and they were mm-hmm. and they were trying to amend their priorities as best as they could within the system. Mm-hmm. Some of them were saying, "Look, I am not interested in working drug cases." Mm-hmm. I mean, the best guy I ever had, the best source I ever had, and I later ended up writing television with him was Ed Burns, who was a homicide detective. Mm-hmm. But he would do these complex ornate wiretaps that involved targeting of, of violent drug gangs in Baltimore that were responsible for multiple murders. And he chose the targets because they were responsible for multiple murders. He could not fix the overlay that was drug prohibition. He, that was not, you know, that wasn't in his bailiwick. Mm-hmm. He was uh, one detective from, from Baltimore, Maryland, but he could look at where all the bodies were dropping in, say, the Lexington Terrace projects and target that group that was, you know, busy killing people as a matter of, of business. And he could remove them. And in removing them, he could reduce the murder rate. And, and you know, in fact, there was one f- wonderful story he told me about after they, they pulled all these guys out of uh, Lexington Terrace and, and after there'd been this terrible drug war in 86. And, and they basically walked through the, the projects. They walked up and down the stairwells, the cops did. Um, and they said, you know, uh, you see, you're all selling, still selling drugs here. We know that, but nobody's shooting anybody. And if, if you can figure out how not to keep shooting, you know, how not to shoot everybody, we won't be back for a while. In, in a sense, they were saying harm reduction. It's like, can you guys figure out how to sell this shit without killing each other? And when you can't, we have to come and address that. And, and so that was a very sort of sophisticated, you know, for 1986, that was a very sophisticated message to be putting out. Mm-hmm. If, but, but of course, they were not, that was not the commander of the homicide unit, I'm sorry, of the narcotics unit or the DEA field office people. That, that, was, that was a homicide detective who was looking at, at murders. So there were people who were laying in the cut, so to speak, who were very smart about the drug war, and they were not cynical. They were trying to do the best police work under the circumstances they could. Well, so when you step back from reporting, right, and just to, you know, inform the audience, right, so David, you know, basically begins to take a leave from reporting and first does this intensive investigation of the police, writes a book that becomes a TV series called Homicide, highly regarded, then goes and does The Corner with Ed Burns, which is another incredible book, very highly regarded, also becomes a TV, I think, miniseries. And I think these two things kind of come together to help you produce, you know, The Wire uh, in the early 2000s in a way, on the one hand looking at the cops, on the other hand looking at people selling drugs on the street and that whole world. But what you're very much doing is very much in the tradition of drug ethnography. And when you wrote The Corner, you credited a book by Elliot Lebow, who in the early 60s wrote a book, Tally's Corner, about street corner life in D.C. But there was Ed Preble was the godfather of drug ethnographers, did uh, articles called Taking Care of Bigness. And there was Mike Agar, Philippe Bougois, who I don't know if you heard about a crop, but I had him on episodes Mm -hmm. who did In Search of Respect and Righteous Dope Theme, where he spent many years immersed in 
these communities. And in some ways, Sam Canonis, right, with Dreamland and Least of Us, although he comes right. to different conclusions than you and I do on the drug war. But when you start to immerse yourself, right, in this street life, in, the, in, in this world, does it feel like a fundamental sort of freedom from the demands of reporting that you're able, able to go deeper? And do you sure. see yourself and perceptions changing in fundamental ways when you do that first with the cops and then with people in the drug world? Yeah, I graduated from daily reporting to doing project work uh, in criminal justice, and, and that was those were my later years at the Sun. Um, but while I was at the Sun, I took leaves of absence to be able to do sort of stand around and watch journalism. One year in the homicide unit, following a shift of detectives, and you sort of see the mass assembly line that is death investigation in a violent city. And then the second book was I went to a random drug corner with Ed, this sort of drug saturated neighborhood, and we met this broken. We started meeting people randomly, but eventually we settled on this very uh, broken nuclear family of mother, father, son, who were utterly engaged by the drug culture there. And the second book, by the time I got ready to do the corner, my, my, my reporting at the Sun had brought me to the point. In fact, I'd already written that piece about that piece about the um, what had gone wrong in the police department. Basically, said you're emphasizing drug arrests and you're emphasizing mass arrests and you're emphasizing drug prohibition and you're not doing police work anymore. You're not responding to murders, robbers, robberies, rapes, you know, <laughs> you, you know, a felony is no longer a felony, but you guys can go in everybody's pockets at the corner of, you know, Mountain Fayette. What are you doing? And so it was a critique of police priorities that, that, that series. So even, even when I left the paper to do the corner as a, as a leave of absence, I already had grave doubts about what the, the drug war was doing, but now I got to experience it from the, from the other side, from the people being policed. And you could see how disassociative and how destructive this police department attempting to be an, uh, an army of occupation was. They weren't making the neighborhood safer. They were just harvesting stats in the neighborhood, and, and, they, were, and they were losing their credibility, one arrest at a time, or one failure to arrest at a time in some ways, with the people who lived there. And so fewer and fewer people were talking to them. Nothing was getting accomplished, and everyone was getting paid, but, but nothing was getting better. It was getting worse. So... The corner actually allowed me to see it from a, a perspective that wasn't, you know, you, were, you weren't kicking in the door with the police. You were basically with the people whose doors were being kicked in. Mm -hmm. By the way, it did not give me any regard for drugs. <laughs> if you think I'm benign about the, the, the presence of drugs in American society, particularly in this era of, of oxy and fentanyl and, and all that, I mean, I've lost too many people. I mean, everybody I, everybody I walked behind in the corner just about is gone. And far too many of them from, from overdose deaths. You know, the headline today as we're talking in early May is that the Center for Disease Control has just announced that more people died of a drug overdose uh, in the past year than ever before, over 100,000 people. Right. That's more than all the gun deaths and motor vehicle deaths put together, plus an extra, sure. you know, t tens of thousands. And one of the people who died was the actor Michael K. Williams, um, who played Omar, you know, the kind of charismatic figure in The Wire, who Obama and many others said was their favorite character and really extraordinary. And mm -hmm. at one point, I think I saw Michael Williams talk about how in his own struggles that the intensity of being in The Wire uh, as an actor would sometimes bring on a relapse for him. And I just say, what more can you say about your relationship with Michael Williams? Um, Michael struggled. We had a point at which he actually came to production and was very honest about the struggle he was having. We explored with him what that meant and what he wanted. I mean, did he need to step back from the show um, and from the role? And, and, 
And instead, what he said was, no, he needs to. Do, he needed to work. He needed to uh, orient himself around around the work. And we actually, one of the guys in the production became basically the the good angel on his shoulder and stayed with him, and stayed with him all the time in Baltimore, and and basically pulled him through. This was a, probably a moment in season three of the show, the five year run of the show, so that when Michael was working, we stopped worrying about him, and Michael stopped, I think, worrying about relapse because he had some guardian angels around him. We obviously couldn't do that with somebody's, you know, somebody's life, you know, uh, ad infinitum. I always worried about Mike. Mike was an incredibly gentle spirit who um, took a lot of stuff to heart and, um, and felt like nobody else I ever experienced. He was really smart. He was really uh, attuned to his own heart, his own pain, but he had, you know, he was uh, tempted. And I think, you know, um, I don't think I'm saying anything that wasn't in a toxicology report. I mean, I think, you know, if you want, if you want me to say it bluntly, he did those things to himself, you know, and he had, he had help from the goddamn Sacklers. You know, I mean, there's nothing that has proven more lethal than, um, than the whole oxy revolution and, and, and now fentanyl and the idea of these synthetic opiates that are just killing people, uh, murdering mm-hmm. them um, for profit. And and the fact that it's complicit with people who are taking them, sometimes taking them for pain, you know, as part of pain pain regimens. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the power of these drugs is such that the, the dosage can be incredibly yeah. make you vulnerable. Although, I mean, you know, it, David, it is, I mean, the Sacklers deserve eternal damnation for what they did. But it's also true that the crackdown on OxyContin probably helped catapult first the spread of heroin and then fentanyl. And, you know, overdose fatalities have increased maybe fivefold since the uh, peak of the thing. So on one hand, it did uh, get it yeah, going, but the fentanyl thing is, you know, it's a different thing. All I know is when people were um, shooting street heroin or, or mm-hmm. snorting snorting street heroin or cocaine, they weren't dying in these numbers. There is something extraordinary about what the lab has done. Yeah, in the case of fentanyl, we're not talking about legally produced fentanyl coming out of- No, I know, we're not. I know, know, but but we're talking about the revolution that is basically synthetic. That's right. And and it's basically taking the drugs to another level. Um, Yeah, but also a dynamic of prohibition. It's the economics of prohibition. Yeah, I don't dispute that. Where when you start to crack down- yeah, you shift in that direction, right? I, I agree with that. Substances. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that um, prohibition is our way out of that nightmare, but I am suggesting that um, a lot more money should be attendant on the treatment and on the uh, on the intervention at the human level of synthetic drugs and what they're doing, even even to the addict population. Right. But it also calls for bolder solutions when you're dealing with deaths that are stemming from an unregulated, adulterated drug supply where fentanyl's showing up, not just as pure, you know, fentanyl, but mixed in with other opioids and now stimulant drugs and everything else. Right. Um, it calls for bolder solutions, which is why I've admired the fact that, you know, you haven't pulled your punches. You know, you've called. Not It's not just about the drug war. It's about drug prohibition and about the right. need for a fundamentally different strategy. Well, that's um, right. I mean, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically result-based, which is to say, if you could have shown me that the draconian mass arrest of, of drug users or even drug sellers uh, had resulted in lower levels of addiction, lower levels of drug purity, that um, there were less drug corners in my city than there, than there are now, if you could have shown me any progress, we could have had an argument and I could have said, well, yeah, it's really draconian and you locked up 100,000 people in Baltimore last year and you've ruined a lot of lives and you've made criminal histories out of just everybody between the age of 
you know, 15 and 25 and congratulations. But yeah, you know, the addict population has been diminished and, and drugs are less available and the purity is less. We could have an argument about whether the draconian use of, of law enforcement had done mm-hmm. anything. Instead, right. everything's worse. And then I look across the aisle and I say, what's the clearance rates for murder and for robbery and for rape, and for assault? Is my city more or less livable? And Baltimore is now the most violent city one of the most violent cities in America, and it's the most violent it has ever been in its modern history. Meaning, yeah. you're arresting half the number of people you used to arrest for doing actual crimes against people. That police work has died because there's no money in it. There's money in grabbing everybody off the corner and throwing them into the courthouse for no reason. Mm-hmm. That's how you get paid and promoted as a police officer in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. So that part of it, you know, it's like, I'm just, you know, just show me what you've accomplished and show me what you failed to accomplish and I'll make a decision on based on whether you're going to keep doing this or not. It'll be coaching. You know, that, that's my feeling on that. Yeah. Stupid crime makes for stupid cops. Mm-hmm. And there is no, there's nothing complex about an open air drug market. <laughs> there's just nothing. It's, you know, crawl inside a vacant row house in Baltimore, you know, look down at your corner, um, watch for 10 minutes and you know who's working with ground stash, pull the wagon up. You know, you could actually arrest the right people if you wanted, or you don't even bother to do that because what, what does the Fourth Amendment mean in Baltimore anymore? Just jump out on the corner, give this ground stash to the guy standing close to it. Every, you know, you make your stats. They go to the courthouse. You get paid because when you have to show up at court the next morning, you know, and you're, you're working a four to 12 the night before, you're now on overtime. So you're going to get paid more than the guy who sits on his post and tries to figure out who's been robbing people in armed robberies or who's been breaking into the churches and stealing stuff out of the churches. That guy, you know, if he works that problem for a week and a half, two weeks, three weeks, maybe he gets one arrest a month and it goes into the computer as one arrest. The other guy's got 40, 50, 60, 70 arrests, loitering in a drug-free zone, you know, distribution, you know, possession with intent, possession. He gets paid. The other guy doesn't get paid. And then some, some idiot in planning and research uh, who's trying to like assess who should be promoted to sergeant or he goes to the guy with 40 arrests says, you know, Hey, you're, you're a worker. You know, you want to be a sergeant, you want to run the drug unit. And that guy ends up training the next generation of cops, not how to not to do the job. You want to solve a, you want to like be a a cop and solve a murder or solve a string of shootings. There are skill sets utterly devoid of the drug war. I mean, you need to know how to work informants and not be worked by informants. You need to know how to testify in court without perjuring yourself. You need to know how to write a search and seizure warrant. You need to know how to Use various forensic uh, tools that 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 don't have any relation to the drug war. They're basically skill sets that don't have anything to do with drug prohibition. And those things died. They died on the vine. When I was covering the department in the late '80s and through the '90s, you know, into the '90s, it's not like every cop was great. You know, there were a lot of guys who were humps, and they, they you know they couldn't make a case to save their lives. But they were usually in squads with one or two guys who knew how to get a case through the courthouse. They had the skill set. And so whole squads would actually be involved in maybe solving a case. So your clearance rate was 70%, which, hey, you know, that's the national average. And maybe four out of 10 of those, once you shake it out of court, maybe four out of 10 people who kill somebody in Baltimore go to prison. Nowadays, it's it's 35% and one out of 10 is going to prison. No wonder Mm -hmm. we now have 350 murders a year instead of 230. Mm -hmm. Because nobody had, the, the drug war taught everybody how to not do police work and made for mm-hmm. stupid generations of cops. And then those generations, those, those guys are now the colonels and, and the majors. They're teaching the lieutenants the wrong metrics and the lieutenants are teaching the, the guys on the street the wrong metrics. Mm-hmm. And, and 
the only thing that it cost us was police work in America. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, David, so let's dig into this, both about Baltimore historically and also contemporaneously. 1988, the drug war is raging, right? And I'm a first-year assistant professor at Princeton, and I write these articles in prominent journals basically saying the drug war is bust, and its prohibition is the problem, and yes, drug abuse is a problem, but prohibition's a failure. It's doing more harm than good. We have to change it. And it's kind of hanging out there. And a month later, the new mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, who had been the former chief prosecutor, a black man, throws away his speech at the National Conference of Mayors and 
and gives this really remarkable speech saying we have to put all alternatives on the table. The drug war is bust, right? And at yeah. that point, you know, Schmoke and I became like a, you know, he was the, the, the Baltimore mayor. I was the Princeton academic and we're out there, you know, debating Charlie Rangel, the Harlem congressman on the most, on most dangerous man in America. Exactly. You know, and, uh, but you know, yeah. we're, we're on all the TV shows and he's on Oprah and I'm, and I'm on, and we're on Donahue and I'm on Larry King and we're doing, and then these creates a task force and I'm on part of his task force and I'm going to Baltimore and I see him. And I, for me, he, Kurt really is one of my heroes. You know, for the fact of a young aspiring politician to take that bold to stand and then not back away. And I saw him struggling because he didn't have the state's attorney with him. He didn't have his police chief. He finally gets the police chief, Tom Frazier, who's willing to go along with some of this stuff. He has to switch health commissioners. He's right. struggling on this stuff to really make it. He's want, he wants to get needle exchange programs going to reduce HIV AIDS, and he's being condemned by the black church leadership in his town. And I right. want to know from where you were sitting as a reporter, I mean, how did this look to you? I don't know if you were covering Schmoke at that point or just covering on the police stuff, but what did it look like from where well, from where you were it, seeing this? It was a little more complicated if you were on the ground in Baltimore. I mean, I think the Schmoke administration, oh, by the way, a prophet without honor for saying what he did about the drug war. I, I, I never admired a politician more. Um, and he did it. manage to become get reelected, become, a, I think, the first three-term mayor since Nancy Pelosi's father, Tom D'Alessandro, you know, Jr., back in the late 40s and 50s. So he was I mean, successful, but he cut off his broader career in terms of going for he, statewide he, he office. He didn't make, he wasn't, he wasn't considered for the Clinton cabinet. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this, this young, uh, incredibly dynamic former prosecutor and big city mayor he obviously was a rising star in the Democratic Party, and that did not materialize after he did what he did. And he was vilified by Wrangle and others, and you know, and, and tragically so. He was right. I mean, but th- then, you know, I, I would not suggest that the Schmoke administration actually had a handle on its police department or, or had any effect on the, you know, I, I mean, I was, I'm sorry, I was a reporter on the ground. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Tom Frazier was a mess as a police, as a police commissioner. Mm-hmm. And the guy before him, uh, the, the the couple before him who were sort of in-house, they were not particularly uh, insightful about anything, Ed, Ed, Eddie Woods and, and Edward Tillman. And basically, the police department, it was business as usual. It was not like Schmoke had his hand on trying to affect policy. He basically raised the idea in theory and said, we should be talking about everything. But, you know, the, the laws stayed the same. And you know, by the way, the, the the Baltimore mayor does not control the yes, state's attorney. Exactly. The, 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 that's a state position. And so. he doesn't control the laws either. I mean, he no, can do no. things like so, trying I mean, to move forward on needle exchange and policing right. priorities, so, I mean, but yeah, it's one thing to fundamentally say, change the system. It's one thing to yeah. say that, that, that Schmoke, um, I mean, he had he had the ability to, you know, and with Bielensen and, you know, his later, uh, his later health commissioner, he had the ability to do some things on the health side of it, but but the drug prohibition went on unimpeded. And it continued to devour the police department in the wrong ways. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that Kurt, Kurt Schmoke, you know, took a beat on the drug war in any substantive way. He took a beat on it philosophically and in terms of being an absolute truth teller. And it, his truth came a lot. It came too early for anybody to um, credit it or for enough people to credit it. And it came too early to save his political career because he had basically mm-hmm. spoken out against a, a status quo that. Listen, in this country, when you say you're against drugs or you say you're hard on crime, you have a political career. You know, when, when you start talking in the amorphous ways of rationalizing the reality of, of drug addiction and treating it as a health uh, dynamic, um, that doesn't 
that doesn't land on voters the same way, black or white. Mm-hmm. And he had as much problem with um, black community leaders in Baltimore as he did with white. And when he, when he started to suggest this stuff, and look, his the great antagonist when once he went to Capitol Hill to argue his point was Charlie Rangel of all people. Right, who also chaired the House Select Committee on Narcotics and probably did more to advance the drug war in Congress than any Republican did back in those days. Right, well, look, hey, the omnibus crime yeah. bill under Clinton uh, was a savage redressing of, of um, sentencing that, that um, my God, I mean, we're still dealing with the, yeah, the fallout from that. So in, in the new show, We Own the City, the, the sort of almost most compelling, maybe central character, and this is all nonfiction, is this sergeant, I think, uh, Wayne Jenkins, who is incredibly sort of charismatic and corrupt. And there were, there were three things that struck me as I'm sort of watching the show, David. I want to ask you about each of these. You know, I remember when I was doing my interviewing of DE agents down in Latin America, and I remember talking, I think it was to one of the guys who was the agent in charge in uh, Bolivia. And he told me about how folks in the government had come to see him and they said, look, we want your input. We're going to appoint a new drug czar. And we essentially have two choices here. Choice A, you know, what we all know is he's totally clean, but he's totally ineffective. Choice B, he's going to be corrupt, but you can work with him. You can make cases. And the DEA guy basically said, you know, we opted to pick Choice B, the guy we knew to be corrupt because we knew we could still work and make major cases with him and take out some of the bad guys. Whereas with Kate, with the first option, we weren't going to get anywhere. And the Wayne Jenkins character, as portrayed in the show, and I guess in the book as well that you based the show on, right, is somebody who is remarkably good at, he has a nose for cases. And some of this involves the elements of being dirty and corrupt, but some of it is actually doing real police work the way that you would, you know, there's an element of him that's an amazing cop and this amazing of him that's an incredibly evil cop. And I wonder what was your sense about, you know, do these things sometimes go hand in hand? I, I would, I would be wary of saying that, uh, a lot of what Wayne was doing was, um, sort of legitimate police work. I mean, this is a guy whose probable cause uh, extended down to, um, guys driving in an Acura and he's carrying a, a book bag. That's probable cause. So in some ways, Wayne could be right and yet wrong in sort of the mm-hmm. ethos of what the Constitution says you're supposed to do. But beyond that, he had real street instincts. He did. Um, and he was charismatic. And he was very clever about the use of information and informants. And he would, he would parlay arrests into information in a way that good cops do uh, for the right reasons. For him, it was often parlaying it into you know, targets that he could then rob. Wayne was permitted to become Wayne and then to maintain himself in, in the authority he had in the department because he put dope and guns on the table and they were chasing. In the, in the era when he was at his height, um, the sophistication of the police leadership in Baltimore had at least changed from this point to, to, from point A to point B. Point A was put dope on the table. They had come to realize that putting drugs on the table meant nothing. You know, the, the street value of everything is who gives a shit. You know, it just doesn't matter. There's drugs everywhere. We're saturated. You know, uh, get, getting a guy with a package means nothing. So to try to reduce the violence, which was job one in Baltimore, rather than make cases against shooters, which of course is the hardest kind of police work and the, and the kind of police work that is really sustainable over the long term, but requires skills, they were trying to just grab guns and put guns on the table. Guns on the table is a flawed metric. To, you know, it sounds better. Oh, we got a bunch of guns, but of course, it's a gun-saturated society. You know, every you know, they can get a gun anywhere in Baltimore. 
So the idea of just like targeting the guns, but Wayne could do that. Wayne could put, you know, 140 guns in six months, you know, on the table for the police department. And he could make gun cases that might not hold up in court, but were nonetheless arrest stats. And so he looked valuable and he looked incredibly valuable to police after Freddie Gray, which was the unattended death of a man in, in the back of a police wagon in Baltimore, uh, which certainly was negligent. Um, it resulted in, in, a, in an uprising or a riot, depending on your point of view. And in the wake of that, the state's attorney uh, kind of overcharged the case and, and she charged a bunch of Fourth Amendment stuff that really wasn't legit. <laughs> but she, you know, she, she, she rightly charged the death. But she actually went after the officers who had made a, a, a an arrest that was was going to hold up in court, and she did that for political reasons. I don't have to get into it. But in the wake of that, the police department had sort of a job slowdown, and guys were not getting out of the cars to even clear corners anymore. Because why would I do that when the state's attorney might indict me criminally over an argument over the Fourth Amendment, where I might be right, I might still get, or if if I'm wrong, you know, even even if I mess up on the Fourth Amendment, Jesus. The Supreme Court of the United States can't decide what the Fourth Amendment means. They keep changing the rules every every session. There's a new Fourth Amendment case that changes when we can make a Terry stop or when I can, you know, when I can detain you or when I can question you. So the guys were basically saying, why would I bother to even get out of the car? And there was this work slowdown. So here, here's Wayne, who's just, you know, still out in the street, still putting guns on the table. They needed him even more. The, the city was aflame. Nobody was doing police work. The murder rate had skyrocketed. And here's Wayne and his crew, and they're bringing guns in, and they're bringing arrests. So he had permission. You know, nobody well, was going to look seriously at him. Well, this, this, so there's two other things that follow from this, right? One is it made me think, obviously, we talk about Freddie Gray and what happened in Baltimore, you know, with his being killing and the, and the rioter uprising, as you say, that followed that. But then also this significant jump in homicides in Baltimore from 240, 250 year to over 300, which has continued um, for years, to, you know, for the, ever, the years ever since. Now, if you look, sort of jump forward to what happened with George Floyd, Right. It almost seems like a Baltimore Freddie Gray situation that's once again, you know, kind of got, got been nationalized. Right. So if you look just last year, right, I mean, homicides have jumped so much in the past two years because of the pandemic, a lot of reasons. But in Philadelphia, Austin, Texas, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Portland, Oregon, Memphis, Louisville, Milwaukee, Albuquerque, Tucson, all broke their pre existing records for the most homicides ever. And the question rises is how much of that that is the sort of post Freddie. I mean, you make in We Own the City, you point out the kind of cop slowdown, you know, all the reasons you just described for not wanting to take any risks on the street, right? Do you think there essentially was a nationalization of this phenomenon with cops basically saying, fuck it, like we're not going to take any risks, we're not going to do what we should do because we, the community's not supporting us? The community's not supporting us and we're, and we're getting grief and, and we're, we're the bad guys. But there's also a little bit of, if we can't do police work the right and, and legal way, we're not going to do it at all. And what I would argue is that the drug war over the course of generations basically eroded everything that the Fourth Amendment stands for. And so you don't have police who understand when you can legally do a Terry stop or what the, what the probable cause is that can allow them to detain somebody or when you have to uh, Mirandize somebody. These things became unimportant uh, because, you know, a generation ago when these cops were coming on the force in Baltimore, and I'm always going to speak to Baltimore. I, I mean, I, you can't get me to talk mm -hmm. about what happened in Tucson if I'm not from Tucson. But watching what happened in Baltimore, 
uh, we had a mayor, uh, Marty O'Malley, who wanted to be governor very badly. In fact, he wanted to be president. And he needed, a, he needed a, 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 a miracle in Baltimore. He needed to show that he was the tough on crime, I solved the problem of Baltimore and, and, the, and the street culture that had been so destructive to the city. And so he started to um, arrest everybody. And by everybody, I mean it was ridiculous. In a city of 600,000 people, his police department made 100,000 drug arrests. Or not drug arrests, just all arrests in, in one year. One out of every six people by, by per capita. I mean, obviously, there were people who were arrested seven, eight, ten times. But he basically was clearing the streets on no probable cause. There were laws on the books by this time. you know. And, and for this, we can bless our city council that basically made most of the inner city a, quote, drug-free zone. Meaning it was like, we've declared these 10 blocks of Monument Street to be a drug-free zone, meaning you can't loiter in them. That's insane. That's, if, you, if you understand the Fourth Amendment, you know, wait a sec, I, I live here on this block. You're saying I can't walk here? Well, you can walk, but are you going to stand out here on your stoop? Yeah, I'm going to stand. It's a, it's a nice day. I'm going to stand out here on my steps. No, you're going to jail. O'Malley's theory was, insane though it may sound, was if I can lock everybody up who's standing, hanging around on the street, they can't shoot each other and I'll get the murders down under 200 as I promised. If they're in their houses, they're not going to shoot each other. They're going to shoot each other on the street. That's what the police commanders were told. So we locked up 100,000 people and the Fourth Amendment, we trained a whole generation of cops how not to basically police legally. To me, it's not like, uh, I don't want to do police work because you don't support me. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't want to do police work because I don't know how to do police work. I no longer understand the difference between somebody who truly is loitering and, and, and who for a, a basic loitering statute might, you know, as fragile as loitering is as a, as a I mean, there's, a, it's a, there's enough abuse of that statute, of course, but I don't even have to yeah. think about what I'm seeing them doing or how long they're doing it or whether or not they're, they, they in any way have given me probable cause to suspect that they're trafficking in drugs on this corner. Mm-hmm. It got to the point of, you're here, I got you, in the wagon you go. And those are the cops who, um, those, those became a generation later, the, uh, the cops who were in the gun trace task force. So uh, when, when O'Malley is campaigning for mayor in 1999 of Baltimore, you know, as is retiring from being mayor, he's holding up your book, The Corner. I right? know. At the same time that he's saying drug dealing is oh, a violent crime. You, you and, remember you know, that. You remember uh, that, you know, don't you? Uh, you uh, know, yes. I, hey, listen, I can't, I mean, O'Malley, quite frankly, then he becomes governor. I got to tell you, back in 2007, I we had my Drug Policy Alliance, we had some lobbyists working for us in Annapolis, the state capitol. There was a very minor parole reform bill. Uh, O'Malley had told our allies he was going to sign the thing. I think maybe, David, you may even have submitted written testimony in that case. You know, it looked like we were just about there. But Did he I surrounded himself with all, all the, I think so, with all these former prosecutors, and he the damn thing. And so oh, yeah. I always saw O'Malley and also his repudiation of Schmoke. You know, I mean, it was just about him when he ran for president. I mean, any were any access I had to any influential Democrats to damn him, I did because I just think he was a hypocrite. You know, people think it's personal. And and look, I had some dust up with dust ups with him over filming The Wire in Baltimore that, you know, were hilarious mm-hmm. in their own right. But, you know, I, I'm a I'm a trained reporter. I don't take stuff personally. I saw Marty on the train. A uh, long time after we had our beefs, and like I bought him a beer, and we sat there, and we and we shot the shit, and it was like you know it's fine, you know I, we both like Irish music, it's great, you know. But the problem is, is he was one of the fundamental forces that, for political gain and for a very naive sense of how he could reduce violence, um, to, to credit him at all with a decent motive, 
he really impaired that police department. He taught them things and he showed them they could do things that, that they should never have, have gone down that path. Mm-hmm. Although and, although and, there was a drop, right, in the homicide rate in his first few years, and I guess he had a police commissioner, had, Ed Norris, who was pretty right. good, and then he, got in trouble, but became one of the actors on your TV show, I believe. He had so a, he had a brief phase. He had, well, he had a uh, maybe a 20% decline in homicides, which, you know, he brought in Eddie Norris, who was had been a detective sergeant working murders. He, like, Eddie Norris understood police work probably the last police commissioner we had who truly understood that, you know, the way you reduce crime is by knowing who's doing the bad stuff and, you know, getting a warrant for the right guy and kicking in his door at four in the morning and arresting him <laughs> for doing what he did. That was Eddie Norris's sort of um, DNA from, from his time in New York. You know, he was, he was in New York at the time that they were doing that kind of work. And um, to his credit, I would say, you know, left to his own devices, he, he got a probable um, meaning, meaning, uh, I believe it actually happened. Twenty percent reduction in violence over the first couple years of the the O'Malley administration. Uh, it wasn't enough to get down to the campaign promise of less than two hundred murders a year. I think it got it down to, from the three hundreds to two seventy. But when the, the orders started coming from City Hall to lock everybody up and mass arrests and and do what they did in New York or you know do do a Giuliani and lock everybody up for you know spitting on the sidewalk. Norris resisted and Norris said, that's not, it's not only not police work, it's a waste of resources. And um, eventually he had a falling out and he left. And a, a string of police reporters who were willing to do that kind of, actually Ke- Kevin Clark, no, Kevin Clark was also from New York. He had a problem with it. And Kevin Clark found out about the, the cooking of the stats that happened on O'Malley. Because here's the other thing about O'Malley is he had a 20% reduction in murders but he had like a, a 45, 50% reduction in serious assaults and aggravated assaults and shootings, but especially aggravated assaults. No, you, you can't do that. <laughs> it's statistically impossible. Either That means either that the people shooting guns in Baltimore are becoming um, worse shots. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not firing as lethally as they did in previous generations. They somehow you know can't use their handguns anymore. Or your trauma units are now saving triple the numbers that they were saving, you know, the year prior. Right. What so he monkeyed is, with his stats or had of the course, cops he, in a way that you course. had, I think, depicted he, in the wire, right? Well, he did hilarious yeah. stuff. I mean, Schmokes last year, he went back into Schmokes last year of police stats and said, oh, you guys miscalculated. And he, he basically reclassified a bunch of common assaults under Schmokes year as mm-hmm. aggravated assaults so that then when his numbers came down a little bit, he could make it look like his numbers came down a lot. I mean, Marty was yeah. so dirty with the stats. Yeah, I, uh, what a, I, I have a fucking sleazebag as far as I'm he concerned. Was, but he I was, mean, he, you know. guy was already running for mayor and he was already composing his position paper on yeah. how he had fixed Baltimore. Let me pull you, let me pull you away from this for a second. So if you look at the drug arrest stats over the last few years, what you see is there's still a significant racial disproportionality with blacks much more likely to get arrested, even for things in which whites engage in at equal rates, Right. But it's declining. And the major reason has been a significant increase by the hundreds of thousands in the number of people being arrested for methamphetamine offenses in recent years, which is primarily white people. So the hypothetical for you, David, is could you envision doing either looking, looking retrospectively or prospectively doing a show that actually focused in the way you did in The Wire or We on the City on the white methamphetamine drug scene? I mean, because then sure. it also is a way of showing how the, this issue is as much about class as it is about race. And in some it's, places, it's even very more much so. about class. 
It's very yeah. much, and, and I, yeah, listen, you could start at any point and make the same show at this point. I would say that the, um, the increase in targeting of white drug activity uh, because of the methamphetamine epidemic is, has given a generational bump to the drug war is that what seemed to be overtly uh, racist um, and, and targeted towards people of color is now raw class control. It's now just, tar- you know, are you poor? Are you marginalized? Are you at the economic fringe of society? You know, are you, do you have one hand on a drug? That is something that has given the drug war a sufficient bump in credibility. You know, lock up more white people and we can keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's the opposite of the simplicity of the drug war as a racist enterprise. Look, drug prohibition was always targeted towards feared, feared groups. I mean, you know, the first, I think the first drug uh, statutes in this country were anti-yellow peril, opium dens mm-hmm. on the West Coast, you know, anti-Chinese um, legislation. And that goes back, you know, into the 19th century. But I think beyond that right now, there's a, a general class war going on, uh, again, you know, and, and poor whites are happily included. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, you know, if you got, if you talk to me about the Baltimore Police Department uh, of the 1960s or 1950s or 1940s, um, it was ruthlessly racist and, and almost proudly so. Um, and at the moment that uh, it started to have to integrate, you would have thought that that would have humanized in some basic way the police response. My argument is that the reason it didn't was that there was this overlay of drug prohibition that allowed the dehumanization to become systemic, even at the point at which that you were reducing the racial disparity in the department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the guys, one of the saddest interviews I ever did in my life was uh, Bishop Robinson. He rose to the rank of being the, the Secretary of Public Safety for Maryland under, under William Donald Schaefer. He came on the Baltimore Department in like in 1951 and was, of course, a young black officer. He got involved, he got involved with the old BNDD actually for a while and, and was doing undercovers with them. So he was early on in the, in the drug trade. I mean, 1951, my God. And he sort of fought the drug war and he was one of the guys who was there. He was first black police commissioner in, in Baltimore. That would have been the um, mid-80s and then became the, secret- uh, the, the secretary of public safety later on. He, he supervised a lot of the drug war and a lot of the building of, of new prisons in Maryland when they were trying to arrest their way out of the cocaine epidemic in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, particularly in the 90s. And when he was retired, I sat across from him in an Italian restaurant in Baltimore and he looked at me and he said, the drug war was a total mistake. The total mm-hmm. mistake. We it, it led us all. It led us wrong the whole way. So just a disaster. We should have mm-hmm. never. We should have never gone there. And of course, he's retired. He's speaking quietly. Nobody ever says it when they have the job. That's the hard. But right. But he, he. But he was sincere, and it was. It was a guy who'd given his life to it. You know. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All of Opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. The other interesting thing when I think about The Wire are those episodes involving Hamsterdam, right? The sort of where the cops say, let's allow an open air place where the junkies and the dealers and everybody else can gather and we'll get them off the neighboring streets. And interestingly, it's called Hamsterdam, although the real model is more sort of Needle Park from Zurich, which is where you actually had a kind of open air scene like that. But I wonder, how did you come up with that idea for that? Well, Look, the addiction's not going to go away. And, and uh, you know, Ed and I had seen um, what the culture of addiction had, had done to that neighborhood when we were reporting the quarter. So the idea that you can just leave it be and not, not respond to it as a society is, is disastrous. But the idea that you can chase it all over the world and try to arrest your the problem is also insane. So what might you plausibly do if you're a city like Baltimore? And we thought about it and we said, if they could in some way practice harm reduction geographically and basically say, look, we're not going to mess with you if you're selling or buying drugs in these areas because these are, you know, these are devoid of residents, devoid of, you know, we, we have a lot of brownfields in Baltimore. We have a lot of excess real estate right now. It's devoid of commercial strips or schools. You know, we're doing less damage than fighting you where we're fighting you and, and, and not achieving anything. And then maybe we start putting social programs down there and maybe we start doing, you know, addiction outreach and maybe we start doing community outreach and, and, and try to reach people and try to pull them from addiction. But while they're in the active throes of addiction, they're not destroying neighborhoods and the drug war is not destroying neighborhoods. And, and so Ed and I came up with the idea and said, what if a commander tried to do this on a small scale? What would it look like? And I don't think we pulled the punch about making it, making Amsterdam, the actual area that we conceived of. Uh, you know, an area of vacant row houses and mm-hmm. little else, a- as horrific as it would be. Because, I mean, you know, we Ed and I had been through the shooting galleries of, of uh, Franklin Square over in West Baltimore. We'd seen what addiction looked like and, and what sort of masked, you know, uh, a drug market does to a neighborhood. So we weren't trying to pull the punch or say it was going to be pretty or say it, it was going to, you know, it was going to result in 
you know, sunshine and, and warm feelings. But we were really interested in the, the notion of what might you do if, 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 if reducing the harm of drug addiction was your goal uh, societally and the idea of, you know, arresting everybody and, and, and basically um, carrying on this war was not your goal. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, well, how it, much it were you fictional. aware of what was going on in Europe in this regard? Because, you know, no, if we you knew, think about it, I mean, we knew Europe, about Zurich. Europe, yeah. yeah, we knew about Zurich and we knew about, you know, there were obviously liberalizations in, in the Netherlands had already occurred and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Portugal was on the way. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there were other people who were doing a better job of trying to rationalize. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting, David, I'll tell you, in terms of the empirical evidence, what you typically see is that the early phases of a decriminalized scene like that are almost the optimal drug policy, because it doesn't bring all the risks that come with full legalization. I mean, that actually has benefits as well, but also problems in terms of mass marketing. But you're right. doing away with most of the harms of prohibition. And so if you look at what the Dutch did with the cannabis coffee shops, if you look at what they did in the neighborhood of Christiana in Denmark, where they had an open air right. marijuana scene, if you look at the first year of Needle Park. These were all highly successful. But then what happens after a few years is that the gangsters essentially take over. The criminal organizations right. take over right. the marijuana growing. The biker gangs get involved in the production in the, in the sure. production side, you know, all this sort of stuff. But I thought it was fascinating when, when you did and, that. And if, by the way, if you have a real police response where they know how to do, do casework, then you can try to interdict that. And one of the things that Ed Burns, uh, my writing partner and former police detective, one of the things that he said, uh, which I found really insightful, was if you could just put it up to the assistant state's attorneys, the prosecutors, that when you brought in a drug arrest, they basically asked you, why'd you arrest this guy? And if your answer was, well, I was standing there and he was close to the ground, or, you know, he sta- I, you know, I saw him cop drugs. And like, I'm not signing your overtime slip. Go mm-hmm. back out and get me something better. <laughs> If you could do that, you'd start to fix the police department. Yeah. You know, if you, if, but if the guy comes in and says, this is a guy I think, sh- you know, I think he's hooked up with this guy and I think, and, and I think these guys shot three people in my po- and like The guy has a reason why he targeted the arrest. And he says that and, and basically it's credible enough and, and he, he basically makes enough of a case so that you're listening to somebody who's trying to do police work. All right. All right. Well, let's try to make this case. In some mm-hmm. ways- I realize that you're you're dangerously close to something called selective prosecution, and it's got its own problems. But, but basically, the idea of a stat is a stat is what got you there. If if your response to what you're talking about is to march through the Christiana neighborhood in Copenhagen, and basically say I'm going to arrest everybody, good luck. That you know that's not going to work. It doesn't going to do anything. On the other hand, if you say we've got a violent bunch of gangsters who are now encroaching, who are they? How do we get them out? How do we extract them? How do we make business for them problematic? Wow, that's, you know what they call that? They call that police work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think you and I had somewhat similar reactions um, to the the rise of the phrase defund the police. But why don't I just, you know, uh, you say how you perceive that phrase, both in terms of what's good about it and what's bad about it. Uh, there's nothing good about it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a politically disastrous phrase. Yeah. I understand the impulse, which is these police agencies soak up resources that we could put some of these, we could put these resources back into the communities in ways that might be meaningful. But the way that lands on a, on a voting populace, particularly in a time where crime rates are rising, is, are you out of your mind? And by the way, I'm not talking about like white suburbanites freaking out. I mean, you go into the inner city and talk to residents in, in West and East Baltimore, or Pimlico or Cherry Hill, you know, people of color, and they're like, 
I don't want the police to fund it. I want them to come when I call. Um, the, the equivocation in defund the police is thinking that all the police do is over-police these neighborhoods. Um, they over-police people of color. And that is absolutely true in one sense, which is that which shouldn't matter, that which constitutes harassment, that which constitutes racial profiling, that which constitutes um, the police work that should, should not occur and should not be rewarded in America does occur. And these communities are brutally and uh, uselessly over-policed. Then when somebody shoots someone or when somebody's uh, church is broken into or when somebody's raped or robbed and you want the police to come and you want them to respond, nobody shows up. Or if they do show up, they don't have the skill set to arrest anybody. And by the way, in these neighborhoods, a lot of times it's like, they know who's doing like, you know, they're scared of this. All the guys, the guy stays on the corner. The police car goes by. He just stabbed someone yesterday. He stabbed somebody three weeks earlier. You know, nobody comes and gets him. Nobody takes out the trash when, when the neighborhood wants that trash taken out. And so at that moment, that neighborhood is savagely underpoliced. And, and a, a woman named Jill Levy wrote a great book out of um, South Central LA called Ghetto Side mm -hmm. about what happens when there is no meaningful societal response to say murder. And, and when these neighborhoods uh, don't receive a police response that results in any kind of response from the justice system, what happens is retributive violence shows up. The, the, only, the only way you can handle the fact that somebody killed somebody in your family or your friends or it might be gun for you is to gun for them. Right. That's what you and see so you, happening in Mexico and Central America and places of course, like that. And, yeah. uh, exactly right. So, yeah. so basically, like, defund is, is, this, is this notion of the police can't solve anything. Well, I'm sorry, but you know the police. In my time covering the police department, they solved seven out of ten murders, and by the time it shook out of the courthouse, four out of ten people went to jail, and so you had a murder rate of 220, 230 in a city of seven hundred thousand. Now I got a hundred thousand people less in my city. They solved thirty-five percent of the murders, and it's one out of ten probably goes to, to prison on those on that casework. And the murder rate is 350, and we're as violent as we've ever been in modern history. Here's my motto. Change the mission. Not defund, not abolish. I don't want you to park the police cars. Tell the police you want them to do this and not this. You yeah. don't want them to over-police the drug war. You no, want exactly. Them to solve stop, crime. stop, stupid. I mean, I agree. I think that de you know, defund the police was one of the greatest gifts to the right wing in America that the Jesus. left has ever delivered. It's, it's, and at the it's same time, the notion of cutting yeah. stupid drug war stuff and stupid overtime right. pay would be meaningful. Now, listen, I know you said you're not an expert in other cities, but you know, a few years ago, you came up to my city, New York, and you got an award uh, from the Osborne Association, which is a great organization doing criminal justice reform work here. And you called New York the death star of mass incarceration. Now, you know, I look at my city, where, in my state, where we went crazy on the drug war back in the late 80s, mm -hmm. early 90s, mm -hmm. and then we rolled back the drug war. My organization led the way on reforming the Rockefeller drug laws. But I remember right. a few years ago, you had as many or more murders or homicides in Baltimore in one year as we had in New York, in even New York. though you got our population is more than 10 times the size of yours. So what did you mean by the death star of mass What I was referring to yeah. What I was referring to is the export from New York of the of the ide ideology of zero tolerance and of if they show up to squeegee your um, windshield as you come out of the Midtown Tunnel, arrest them. The broken windows theory of, of Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's not what, you know, you want to know the things that reduced crime greatly in New York. I, I know them, which is one, an, an incredible emphasis on actual police work, on debriefing everybody you arrest for a crime and, and prizing information 
above all. The guys who, who basically championed that in the 80s um, defined police work in the, in the proper way. And that happened in New York. I mean, you, you, couldn't be a, you couldn't get a gold shield in New York without having, I think, two registered informants who were good, who gave you mm-hmm. information. The, 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 the idea that making cases actually um, led to police careers uh, it wasn't revolutionary. It was basic, but it was heralded in New York, um, and, and that that was one thing. And the other thing is, look, you guys had Wall Street. You know, if Wall Street were North Avenue in Baltimore, and North Avenue were Wall Street, you know, my city would be doing fine too, because mm-hmm. you have a thirty-year run-up on Wall Street. The money has to come back somewhere, and they basically rebuilt um, huge tracts of Manhattan and and much of the outer boroughs. And, you know, I mean, I, I listen, I, I worked in New York in the, in the late 70s, and, and I remember trying to go buy weed in Thompson Square, and they, they sold me a bag of oregano, and, and um, <laughs> I was happy to have it because I wasn't dead, <laughs> I hadn't been killed, uh-huh. and I went and smoked my cooking product because um, uh, uh, because I, had, I celebrate the fact that I, you know, managed to live. Whereas yeah, I, had that, only, I, say, I had that experience, David, in Dam Square in Amsterdam in 76. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm saying the only thing that, the only thing that can mug you in Tompkins Square after, after the transformation of New York because of money, because of capital, because they've rebuilt the entire city on wealth that doesn't exist for other second tier American cities. The only thing that can mug you in Tompkins Square now is a three-star restaurant. I mean, <laughs> You know, the, the the physical transformation of New York has to do with mass capital rebuilding a city for fun and profit. And Baltimore doesn't have that. And St. Louis and Cleveland, we don't have those same options. You know, that's, that's the economic reality. That coupled with the NYPD still being an, a police agency that values information and values mm-hmm. uh, information over a lot of other things that police, you know, departments have, have misvalued in other mm-hmm. places. Uh, those are powerful forces. So I'm curious, you have your local prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, right? I mean, and you pointed out she made a mistake on overcharging on the Freddie Gray case, but she's been one of the pioneering progressive prosecutors when it comes to decriminalizing drug possession offenses and some other things. And what do you think about those current policies she's trying to do? And have the police been willing to go along with them? Or do they have no choice because no. the prosecutors won't charge? The crime's way up in Baltimore, but I don't think the crime's way up for that reason. I think the crime is way up because they can't make a case. <laughs> they mm-hmm. can't make the case they need. And, and Mosby's office is a shambles. And, and a lot of the veteran prosecutors have walked away. And she will not bring cases into court because, A, the police work is bad. But also, she's abandoned the basic mission of being a prosecutor. It's one thing to say, I'm going to be progressive and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be dragging mass arrest through my courthouse. That's, you know, I, I admire that. On the other hand, there are places where you're using charges as leverage to make real cases. And again, a blanket statement where you're not going to use what's on the books so that somebody becomes a witness in a shooting or in a rape or a robbery, um, mm-hmm. that's problematic too because mm-hmm. those, things are, you know, those, those things are leverage for an honest criminal investigator. That's how mm-hmm. people, talk, people talk when they're in trouble. So there's not one single answer. It's, it's a case-by-case assessment of where am I going to, where am I going to use my, depart, my, my agency's resources for and what am I going to achieve? And the fact is, is while she may, you know, she may be heralded for being progressive in some ways, her, her office is a, is a goddamn mess. They can't, they can't do anything right. They're, they're not aggressive about the things they need to be aggressive about. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, years ago, um, we started to get to see in New York City that a growing number of juries were refusing to convict people for low-level drug offenses. And right. my organization got involved even in a ballot initiative, I think it was in one of the Dakotas, that would require judges to inform jurors of their right of jury notification. It did not succeed. But I think this became an issue that you jumped on for a while. The Wire's main policy argument was in the drug war. The drug war is destructive and it's not doing what you think it's doing. It's destroying police work as well as communities and families and human beings. And so we, in Time Magazine, the writers of the, of the show, um, as we finished, as we were wrapping up the run of the show, we all committed to um, the fact that if we were chosen for a jury and we were presented with a drug case, possession or distribution that had no attendant violence that was charged as a result of the case, we would vote to acquit. We would vote to nullify that jury. We all said it aloud, on, and, and we wrote it in Time Magazine. Yeah, David, the um, problem is once you say it out loud, you can no longer do it. Well, I know, but you know, we were basically five guys, and what we're hoping is right. like we, con- we convinced 10 more you know, right. to do it. So we wrote it out. We said it out loud, and I've held to it. Um, I believe in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that you know, basically what is teaching the system to respect good police work and to, and to disregard that which is you know, over-policing of human beings and of communities is important. And um, to, to be honest with you, I was on a jury for a drug trial in, in Baltimore. I was picked. <laughs> I was in the box. I was one of, one of, I guess, one of 14. They had alternates. And the prosecutor had missed me. He, he, for whatever reason, he didn't know who I was. He didn't ask me a question. He, I guess he figured like it's Baltimore City. I got a white guy, got a white male. That's good for my jury. So the prosecutor missed me. I think the defense attorney who knew, knew I was, and he wasn't going to say anything. And so I sat there until the judge in his jury instructions, uh, in, in beginning to instruct the jury said, is there anyone here who has any objection to the nation's uh, drug laws? Or, and, and I had to raise my hand. I'm not going to perjure myself. That's not, mm-hmm. you know, not a perjurer. I had to stand up and they basically said, is there no way you can, you know, and, and, and so I was dismissed. So I, I got, I got it. At least I got in the box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember being on a grand jury and after two days, I basically called aside the prosecutor of the room and I said, I can't be here. You know, it's like, uh, you know, why? Because part of my job is to get your boss fired. I think the whole system is bullshit, you know, and actually I managed to get off a grand jury in New York, which is not an easy thing to do. I wanted to be on the jury. I actually, I wanted the case to go ahead. You know, in watching or a, a lot of your stuff, I mean, a lot of it, you know, it's about Baltimore, but you did New Orleans. Orleans, you know, about music. You did New York City Times Square with the deuce about the porn industry. You did Yonkers and the fight over housing desegregation. It was fascinating to me because I grew up in Yonkers uh, oh, a really? decade before that time that you did it. Yeah. But th- recently, just a few days ago, I just binge watched the six episode um, plot against America, Philip Ross novel that you turned yeah. into this wonderful miniseries. And I'll tell you something, you know, just a few days ago, I was just at some New York marijuana march and I'm supposed to give a little speech. And I said, I don't want to talk to you about this because I said the reason that I got involved in trying to end the drug war 30, 40 years ago was because I saw it as perhaps the most fundamental threat to freedom in America, my core values. But now I look around the world and I look at the rise of a totalitarian, you know, China, the emergence 
emergence of of Putin as a kind of wants to be a global wannabe fascist white nationalist leader. And then, of course, in my own country, at the Republican Party becoming, I never would use the word fascist loosely as a former politics professor. I I will. But no, I'm not (laughs) going to use it loosely. I'm saying it specifically now applies to the direction of the Republican Party. It's definitive. I know. And so the question is, I admired your doing that. I admired what you did it. But do you find that this much greater, more existential threat to our values that go way beyond the drug war, you know, and the way the drug war stood out as a kind of shining example of posing the values we stand for as, as Americans, now it seems so much broader. And so that goes to you personally, David, in terms of your thinking, your mind, and given, you know, the high likelihood that three years from now, we'll have a neo-fascist Republican Party controlling the White House, both houses of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the majority of state governments. How is this going to shape your work, or is it not? I'm going to keep making the stories that matter to me politically. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a political writer. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a dramatist, but I'm also, I'm writing about what interests me politically. And my stance is not going to change. Um I'm certainly being given more material every moment, but how's it going to change? I'm not sure it's going to, it's, I don't think it's transformational. I think in some respects, you're asking me what happens when we lose, you know, what happens when we, we turn in in the direction that is um, anti-human and anti-democratic. And the answer is, I mean, at some point, if the money or the laws uh, impair even narrative, if, if, if open speech becomes vulnerable, then Somebody will say, you've got to stop making these shows in the same way that they're already trying to ban books and, you know, the, the, the insanity of that. And, you know, um, the idea that somebody's political theory can be ameliorated by a law against it is just a level of um, dystopian authoritarianism that you didn't think you were going to see in modern America ever again. And yet here we are. So I don't know how that's going to affect it. I just, I know that it's never bothered me enough to, to stop doing what I'm doing that I keep making an argument about stuff and, and nobody takes the argument or nobody passes a better law and fixes anything. You know, I mean, Plot Against America was about Trump. It was about a white populist um, who says all the things that voters think they want to hear and meanwhile is eroding the very fundamentals of what the American Republic and the American experiment are about. And we made it in the election year. And when we were, um, you know, very conscious of, of the stakes, and, you know, I don't know whether anybody watched it or if it, it affected anyone's vote, but we wouldn't say it any different if if we knew Trump was about to be elected. You know what I mean? If he had won in 2020, we would have still made the same miniseries. One of the guys who I really loved when I was a newspaper reporter was I.F. Stone, uh, Izzy Stone. Great independent voice in journalism for many, many decades uh, and, a, and a, a good lefty at heart. And um, Stone said something that I thought was very apt. He said... Um, Sometimes the fights that you have that are, uh, where you know you can't win and you don't win are the ones worth having. First of all, mm-hmm. you know, right is right and don't say the wrong thing because you get to win. Uh, but second of all, maybe by you saying it and losing somewhere down the road, um, you've created enough gravitas or enough momentum that somebody will take it to the next step and then eventually maybe somebody gets to win with it. And that's sort of, that was a very practical distillation of something I read years ago uh, from from Camus, I think in the myth of Sisyphus, which was, he said, you know, to have a, to have a take on something um, or to fight for something. I'm trying, I'm really screwing up Camus here, but, but I, I know exactly what the paragraph is. He basically said, to, you know, to commit to a just cause with the certainty of defeat uh, is absurd. 
but to not commit to a just cause uh, because of the certainty of defeat is equally absurd. And only one of those choices um, affords you the chance at human dignity. And that's it, man. It's like, you know, just because nobody listens to you doesn't mean the story changes. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that's, that's the way you got to be if, you've, if you're dealing with storytelling. Well, David, I don't know if that's an uplifting note on which to end or not, but listen, thank you ever so much for well, joining me. I'll tell you this, it's a, note that I, it's, a, it's a note that I couldn't get out because my brain's fried after talking for an hour and a half, so we're going to have to end. So. Okay, well, listen, thanks. Thanks ever so much sure. for joining me on Psychoactive, and I, you know, more power to you, and I look forward to your next creations. All right, well, be well, guys. Okay, take care. Thank you. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, Please tell your friends about it, or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Lady Amanda Fielding. She's the founder and head of the Beckley Foundation, which is the outstanding psychedelic research institute in the United Kingdom. She's been described as the queen of consciousness. I actually have a particular love of LSD because of its purity. I think in a way it's the most cognitively stimulating and it's the least toxic. So even when you take it regularly for a while, when you come off it, you don't have a hangover. You don't have any craving. There's no aspect of addiction about it. And actually, one needs more discipline to take it than not to take it in a funny sort of way. It needs discipline to take it and work with it. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 